This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield, a program where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Um, well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Actually, Scott, um, before we get stuck in, I was just thinking as the theme was playing there, did you ever get responses from people identifying which songs were being referenced in the theme music? Uh, look, I, I did get a few really curious uh, emails. Uh, there were people that saw uh, a lot more Grateful Dead oh. <laughs> in it than there, in fact, is. Uh, there are some people who suggested a little bit of... Um, Oh, my my brain's gone. Uh, uh, who did the Travellers the Travellers song? Uh, I um, don't know. Did you get your Pearl Jam? I know people yeah, were interested. Oh, Pearl, Pearl Jam was obvious, yes. Okay. The people yeah. spotted that? Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, good. Yeah, I like yeah, that the yeah. theme's just going under this as well, so people can still pick out stuff. It's very good. Yeah, but, but nice nobody picked up... Today. Nobody picked up the little Pink Floyd riffs. Resonance I still can't which... pick up the Pink Floyd... And oh, really? I know Pink Floyd very, very well. Yes, I know you do. And I still can't pick it up. Can you direct me to an era? Or, uh, or do you not um, know that much about Pink Floyd? I can't nominate the era, but I know there were... When we were asked to submit a number of songs from which yeah. a kind of tone, a kind of mood could be derived, there were three songs from Animals. Uh, oh, okay. I, um, so that, that was your, selected, that's so. your era, late 70s. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. I'll think about it. Um, anyway, should we do the show? We probably should. Yes. Um, because it's the, what is it, third in our Ramadan series uh, that right. we're doing on neglected practices. So, so far we've done attentiveness. We did not knowing, mm. which I thought was wonderfully countercultural uh, last week. Uh, what are we doing today? Well, before we move on to today, though, oh, okay. let's, let's backtrack just a smidge to last week. Because it was a wonderful conversation with with Robin Farrell. We're really glad that someone of her curiosity and her intelligence would be willing to come in and discuss what is really a very, very unusual topic. But it did, and and we were talking about this off-air, and I guess I wanted to kind of bring some of that off-air into this conversation before we move on. Just to kind of reiterate, what we are trying to discuss here over the course of these weeks are habits, practices, things that we deliberately cultivate as a reflection of and a way of expressing our commitment to the moral life. In other words, our lives with others, so the relational dimension of the moral life, but also I think what we can only refer to as the transcendental dimension of the moral life, which might, say, reflect a notion of the necessary limitation of the self. Uh, in other words, uh, this is, these would be both the horizontal and the vertical dimensions of the moral life, the way in which the moral reality of others impresses themselves and imposes themselves on our moral consciousness and necessarily constrains our will, our behavior. This is why Simone Weil, for instance, elevated the concept of consent to one of the very, very, very high moral ideals, moral principles. Consent is the way in which one doesn't just run over other people in order to get what one wants, but sees other people in their very obstacle-like nature, not as necessarily obstacles, but as invitations to come and discover goods in common, to come to discover the beauty that that other person brings into the world. So when we talk about, say, the limitation of the self in relation to the others, it's that kind of idea. You know, the other person has obstacle, and in getting their consent, 
I don't get their consent for the sake of anything other than the necessary relationship that that consent brings along with it. But then you think about the, the vertical limitation of the self. So say persons in there to draw on, say, Christian and Jewish and Islamic traditions, humans in their creatureliness, in other words, in our non-absolute quality. The fact that just because we believe we have rights to things doesn't mean that those rights are themselves self-justifying or self-explanatory. Um, but, Waleed, there was something specific that you discussed, that you mentioned when we were talking about this off-air, after not knowing, which seems like a really strange, strange habit to cultivate at a time like this when knowledge is at such a premium, when concerns that authorities or people who have vested interests are keeping things from us. It seems very unusual to think about not knowing as something that could well be a moral habit. But I guess it strikes me that one of the things that refusing to know things that we have not earned the right to know or things that we don't have the standing to be able to know, or things that quite frankly don't concern us, or things quite frankly that trying to know them would be a breach in the fundamental principle of creaturely humility. Um, these are all, I think, important disciplines that help clear the way or create the space for the kind of things like attentiveness to other people and to what really matters, to principles or practices like uh, being able to rest in silence, being able to listen to others. There was something that you brought, though, to the equation uh, in our sort of off-air conversations. I, I just thought it would be nice to kind of revisit that before we press on to oh, today. Now I'm wondering what I brought. Can you give me a hint so that I can guess the right answer to that question? Well, you were just mentioning a, a bit of wisdom or even an aphorism from the prophet. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. It was being, you were being that direct. I thought it was something that I... Just a pearl of wisdom that I dropped without realising that I dropped it. Um, <laughs> well, you know. Yeah. No, no. So it was funny because obviously that series is well, this series is placed in the context of Ramadan. And so hmm. the hmm. idea of not knowing was an interesting one. And it just immediately reminded me of a statement of the prophet where he said that from the goodness of one's Islam is they're leaving alone that which does not concern them. Hmm. And I, I just thought that it's a neat encapsulation of the issue or, or of the practice that we're talking about here, that ability to say I don't need to feed my curiosity about everything because actually through that a lot of harm can be caused. That's that's kind of the foundation of gossip, right? Mm. Um, but also how countercultural that is, that idea. Because in a world where we're trying to repackage everything as political, even beginning with that, you know, that sort of declaration that the personal is political, what mm. flows from that is that everything concerns me because everything is now given some kind of huge political or moral meaning. And so there was an interesting question, I think, there about, you know, at what point can we just say, no, that's not, you know, we need to stop making this some bigger political thing or some bigger moral thing and say, this just does not concern you. What is, what is kind of interesting about this to me, though, is that there are resonances there with the Stoic tradition. Hmm. And I'm not sure how far I'd want to press those, those resonances, but I, I guess one of the things that is curious about Stoicism, you know, if you think about the philosophy of, say, Marcus Aurelius, the height of the moral life 
is the protection, the cultivation, the attending to what he described as the inner citadel. Um, so self-mastery, of course, and, and here, believe it or not, we really are getting into today's topic. Self-mastery is one of the cardinal virtues within the Stoic tradition. Mm-hmm. So mastering oneself, one's impulses, one's desires. And some of those impulses and desires, of course, will be impulses of inordinate curiosity. Um, uh, but I think the other thing that that Stoicism adds to that is limiting the bounds of one's proper knowledge to also the bounds of one's effective agency. In other words, if I can't do anything about it, then there is a very real case to be made that I don't need to know a great deal. So this about was the genocide it. question that I asked you. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, and I think you know, just going back to the genocide question, I guess there is something about one's sheer humanity. I think that makes one incline oneself uh, at the news or at the whisper of some kind of arresting tragedy. But I use the term arresting deliberately because I think one of the things that we often do, and if you just think about, say, the reporting that often accompanies either genocides or forms of mass violence or mass death, we, we cannot calculate the individuality of the deaths. I, mm. I know that sounds like a very strange or even just obvious thing to say, but we can't think about those deaths as so many individuals in their human preciousness. We think about them in terms of their number, in terms of their magnitude. Mm. And it's by thinking about them in terms of their number and magnitude that has a kind of dehumanizing effect to it. So, so one of the moral problems that I think we've been wrestling with since the very beginning of the mass media age is why do three people dying in Denver, Colorado, for instance, chill us, freeze us so much more than several hundred dying, say, in a flood in Bangladesh? And I think one of the things that we end up falling back on, even if we don't articulate it, is in areas where life is so much more precarious Dying is simply what, quote unquote, those people do. Whereas in places where life is far more, uh, I don't want to say cultivated, there are greater protections, for instance, (laughs) surrounding life. There are forms of indulgence uh, um, and enjoyment, forms of health and pleasure that are safeguarded. It's defined by security. Defined by security. It's basically what the Joker said in uh, The Dark Knight, right? right. It's part of the plan. (laughs) If it's part of the plan, no one cares, even if the plan is horrifying. So it it seems to me, Willie, that one of the ways that you really can respond to something like a genocide elsewhere is by doing what one can to, in fact, humanize. In other words, knowing something about the place, about the context, about the history, such that the environment in which that event, that form of violence, that tragedy took place, becomes something that is humanly identifiable. I think that's where one's sympathy can in fact uh, gel, can in fact pair itself with a form of intellectual or even epistemological agency that goes beyond simply having a strong opinion about something. All right. So now we've had two goes at last week's show. Should we do this week's? (laughs) (laughs) So I can't believe that for all of the shows, for all the discussions we've had to accompany Ramadan, we've never actually done fasting. Yeah, I kind of felt it was too direct and literal. Yes, exactly. But it raises all sorts of weird problems, I think. The fact that we haven't done it, I mean. I mean, firstly... 
Uh, I wouldn't say that Ramadan, and here I'm just going to sort of hand things over to you almost immediately, but you wouldn't say that Ramadan is simply about fasting. That would be a complete misunderstanding, I think, a mischaracterization. Well, that depends on how you define fasting. Exactly. That is precisely the point. So I think we're, we're actually at, we're, we're in a conundrum where I think getting to the bottom of what is distinctive about the practice of the fast within Islamic practice, the understandings of the body and of one's creatureliness and of one's relationship both to others and to the transcendent. Getting to the bottom of that, I think, puts us into fascinating, mutually enriching territory, even for those of us who are not Muslim. But at the same time, Waleed, the more I thought about it, fasting is not an unusual topic for us to be discussing today because there are various forms of secular fasting, of secular self-restraint that have no religious or transcendental commitments at all. Can you give me an example? That we, the entire wellness industry, the preoccupations right. of the fitness, the health, the cuttedness of the body, <laughs> the various ways in which, no, seriously, the various ways in which the availability of food at unbelievable levels has been accompanied by the need, the moral need articulated by many to restrain and to cut off many of those forms of food from our enjoyment as a kind of moral injunction. In other words, by simply indulging in cheaply produced, uh, cheaply manufactured and virtually unhealthy food, that is something whereby mm. you know, indulging in that isn't just bad for you. It ends up being a moral wrong precisely because we've elevated health, safety, and pleasure, as Hervé Jouvin puts it. These are our new sort of cardinal virtues mm. in an affluent age. Yeah. There are so many ways to take this because obviously so many things have been written and said about fasting, even just within the Islamic tradition, that it would take, that you could spend the rest of your life just talking about that if you mm. wanted. Um, I want to begin with the observation that there's got to be something to the fact that fasting seems to be a common denominator across just about every religious tradition I can think of or yeah. that I know anything about, which is not that many, mm. I would probably say, but fasting pops up even if it's in sort of more um, mediated forms or ameliorated forms like Lent, for example, which in Islamic terms wouldn't be fasting at all, but it's the nope. same idea, right? You, you give up something voluntarily for some greater spiritual purpose. So, Can I just say, though, Waleed, it is very interesting. Yes. And I should say this as a matter of self-criticism. Yeah. It is very interesting to me that fasting does not have a larger role to play within the Christian tradition. Why is that? Like, why do you find it, it interesting? Uh, sorry, when I say interesting, I mean I find it disconcerting why? that it doesn't. I mean, one of, one of the interesting things is that one of the defining practice among, within the Christian tradition is a form of what can only be described as sacramental eating rather than right. within the Islamic tradition. I think what we could possibly call sacramental fasting. In other words, <laughs> fasting, which is not the absence of something, but fasting, which is the presence, the, ma the making room of the pre for the presence of something much greater. Yeah. Uh, the, the Christian practice of sacramental eating uh, brings together, I think, in a radical and quite an interesting sort of politically and morally speaking form, the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of eating. We are joined to Christ and we are joined to one another through this act of sharing common bread and drinking the common cup. Yeah. What's interesting is that within the Jewish tradition, the vertical dimension of fasting comes in the form of the limitation of certain types of food. There are foods that simply cannot be eaten. But, but within the Jewish tradition, the, the real prominence is given to the horizontal dimension. So, for instance, you find in the prophets uh, that one who fasts and simply does without 
rather than using the fast as a means of accumulating what would have eaten and and giving that as an act of beneficence, as, a, as an act of generosity to others, uh, engages in an impoverished fast indeed. In other words, mm-hmm. fast which simply leaves you hungry but doesn't fill up the coffers of others is no fasting at all. Yeah, and the, the twinning of fasting and charity, is, that's a common theme, I think. I mean, within the Islamic tradition, Within the Jewish tradition, as you say, I'd have yeah, to think right. more about the Christian tradition. Um, Not as much. But what? Okay. But leaving all that aside, I mean, begin with the premise that fasting is not about food and drink, right? Mm. Uh, as in the Islamic context, the, to quote uh, the Prophet Muhammad, that there are people who fast and get nothing from their fast except hunger, and there are those who pray at night and get nothing from their prayer but a sleepless night. Mm. That is, that's not what it's about. But to come back to the point that you made before about the excess of things in the wellness industry and all that sort of stuff in the contemporary context. What I think fasting reminds you of radically is your own contingency. So it is extraordinary how fragile you are and it is extraordinary how fragile your entire condition is. Whereas we have built, in a sense, a kind of false god of our independence, which in some ways COVID taught us, right, or at least threatened Mm. to teach us for a little while we are not in control of anything. No matter what we build and no matter um, the excesses of food that we can generate, even if it is in, you know, processed and very unhealthy forms or whatever, um, these things are merely obscuring our own contingency, our own dependency. And so the spiritual dimensions of fasting begin, I think, with this idea that by experiencing your contingency, and by emptying yourself out of these kind of worldly pleasures for a moment, you begin to uh, appreciate with greater clarity the reality of the situation. That is that you are a highly contingent being and that you leave then room within yourself to embark upon an actual spiritual journey because you're not um, weighed down by or just by gorging on the sort of accoutrements of of the material world. That's about as succinctly as I could possibly put it. But what I would then say is that if that's the case, then I think that has profound implications. It has a profound contribution to make, whether it's surrounding food or otherwise, to Mm. our society of excess material consumption effectively. Can I ask you something about that though? If you want and look, I know we need to reset. I know we need to bring in the guests. But l- let me just we're at a, I think this is a crucial point of the conversation. Let me just let – me, let me ask this. Because I don't think it's quite right, Wally, to say that we live in a time of unrestrained consumption. I mean it is absolutely no, true no, no. to say – What you said no, before no. is right about we do restrain it but for uh, quite – Profane oh, what are you going to say? Okay, okay, interesting. Okay, so let's just stick with this because I find this really, really interesting. So, I mean, various forms of self-restraint, self-discipline, of going without, one could even say forms of exercise-based self-flagellation, that, yeah. that kind of degree of, of, of ascetic self-denial. These are part and parcel of contemporary culture. I think because of the absolute importance that we have accorded to the body, its pleasure, its safety, its health, uh, but also its appearance. 
Yes, but that's an extension of material consumption, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, so would it be fair to say, and I'm, I'm trying to find the way of packaging this so that we can then move on to the next part of the conversation, but I'm so curious to hear what you might. Uh, okay. So part of the, the, the ascetic, the practices of ascetic denial that characterize many aspects of modern society, such that, such that we find forms of excess consumption morally deplorable. And we have no, we have very, very few qualms about making fun of people, for instance, who have lost control of themselves. Uh, let, let me just put it that way, who are incontinent in terms of their dietary habits or who don't exercise enough. But one of the interesting things is that what this practice of ascetic self-restraint does is in many ways, it keeps the body central, mm. both in one's consciousness and in the telos of that self, that practice of ascetic self-denial. Whereas it seems to me that, that the moral contribution of the Islamic conception of the fast is that it's the recognition that the various things that we use to overcome and overwhelm our quotidian needs, those flashes of hunger, those moments of thirst, those moments of longing for things that we then sort of fill up, um, that that contributes to a kind of forgetfulness about our true need, about the underlying need that constitutes and that defines the human life, such that what the fast is meant to do isn't to place the body central in one's consciousness, but instead to make the body something that then becomes a reminder, a signpost. The hunger doesn't become something that then preoccupies our consciousness, but the hunger becomes something that points us beyond ourselves so that we move beyond the self-preoccupation, the centrality of the body mm. other than characterizes these other forms of secular aesthetic discipline. Yeah, that's that's the idea. And that, I guess that's connected to the contingency point that I made. I suppose it's a question of telos, right? Yeah, Because right. It, for all the wellness stuff and the sort of, restri- you know, here's a healthy diet and go to the gym 12 times a day and all that sort of stuff, if I could give you a pill that would achieve the same outcome, you're taking that pill. Mm-hmm. Because then you don't have to undergo any of the difficulty, any of the strain that's involved in that. Because actually the end goal is what matters here and that is to become a figure of beauty. You know, I'm generalizing massively, but you get the point that I'm making, right? That's a very different thing to saying, no, going through this process is important so that you can learn things about yourself. And so that you can learn that, you know, that you can undergo some kind of psychological or spiritual transformation. That's a different process, right? So that becomes a, a telos, a teleological thing. If you're going through all of this for the purpose of making yourself beautiful so that you may enjoy other pleasures, <laughs> then that's a totally different ballgame. Mm, that's not denial of oneself for any real reason anymore. That's a different thing. Um, should we bring in a guest? Yes, please. All right. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN. You might be doing that right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like, um, either by listening on the ABC Listen app or you can follow The Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice. All right, Scott, let's do this. Yes, our guest. It's a particular delight to have him on the show. Mehmet Uzalp is Associate Professor and Director of the Centre for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Mehmet, it's a particular pleasure. Thank you so much for making the time to join us during this holy month. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be on the minefield. 
So let me let me try to, I mean, in many respects, I just want to sort of hand this over to you and and let you take this conversation where you think it ought to go. Before we do, though, it does strike me, uh, and I mean, I myself am not Muslim. I have tremendous, I mean, there's a great deal that I've learned, not least from Walid and his wife, but there is a, uh, a moral vernacular here, and I wonder if it helps us. Uh, the philosopher Iris Murdoch, she, she said that the great impediment to the moral life is the fat, relentless ego. And she used both of those adjectives, fat and relentless, I think in a very deliberate way. One of the things that the ego does is it sees everything in the world about it as a possible object of consumption and as something that exists in order for me to consume it. In other words, all things exist for me, for my sake. To what extent is Ramadan a moral practice and spiritual practice that engages in a discipline of radical uncentering of the self or decentering of the self, whereby I become something that exists in the universe of another rather than all things existing for the sake of my consumption and enjoyment. Well, before I get into that, uh, I, I just want to comment on your discussion earlier about like human contingency that Wally talked about and the uh, excess consumption. I really think that today, one of our problems in the world is that we have devalued what we consume, especially food and drinks so, that are so basic to our survival. Now, we, at, in our homes, we've got many products uh, that we buy and purchase, uh, which is the source of probably uh, excess consumption. And uh, But within that, we have really forgotten about the value of uh, not just a piece of food and uh, and drink. We just consume even, we eat, of course, we drink, but we don't think about it. And I really think that one of the greatest spiritual benefit of fasting is it reminds us to have gratitude and, and show a true form of thanksgiving, you know, which is uh, really to appreciate the value of what we eat and drink to, to realize our dependence on it, the, what uh, while it was talking about human contingency. And, and more importantly, or equally importantly, to know that we are not the ones who are making this food and drink. Ultimately, it comes from nature, even though we collect it and prepare it, or, or it, the source is Islamically, you know, transcendence, uh, God created everything to show that appreciation to God. So, so I just wanted to highlight that or throw mm, my mm. opinion on that discussion earlier. I uh, just want to now going back to the impediment, the idea that uh, the self is impediment to moral life. Uh, I completely think the opposite, actually. Uh, mm, I really feel, I, I feel that uh, the self is the source of moral life. And, and let me explain how that ar arises. You know, there is an idea in the Quran that human being is created in the best integral composition. Uh, the Arabic word is Ahsan al-Taqwim, which I translated as uh, best integral composition, which means that a like, human being is made up of uh, different parts that are put together in the best possible way. So that gives us a, a fundamental assumption that I feel that there's nothing in human nature 
that is inherently flawed or that uh, as a wrong thing. Everything has a purpose, including the body and the self. Um, and uh, and they're there ultimately for our survival in this on this planet and to continue our progeny. And if you look at it that way, like eating, drinking, and sexual activity, which is the three things that Muslims abstain when they fast, um, they're so essential to human survival. And because of that, in, there's powerful hormones and pleasures that are associated with these activities uh, that to, to motivate humans to pursue them. But there are two aspects to this nature that is really, in my view, that generates human success and also human morality, that they are, because of the hormones and the pleasures, there are powerful impulses in the form of desires that come in. And these impulses, you know, can control us. Uh, the downside is that it can control us. So we need to learn to master the delay of impulse. And I think that's the most important aspect of fasting for in Islam, that you're not really abstaining, you know, forever from eating, drinking, sexual activity. You're just delaying it until for a, for a time, long enough time for you to really feel it. And and we really, when we look at all successful people, they have put aside their immediate pleasure and comfort, worked hard and acquired skills and competencies to succeed in life. You know, that that's a fundamental aspect of success. Sorry, the but can, aspect, can I also just jump yeah. in there? There's also yeah. the behavioral dimensions, though, of it, right? So it's the idea that while you're in this position of stress, which you are in, um, what is demanded of you behaviorally is is very high, right? So hence that statement of the prophet that there are many people who um, fast and they get nothing but hunger and thirst from their fast, right? That this is a whole package whereby the highest of your character is meant to come out at this time where you might be feeling the most um, difficulty in doing that, right? That's... There's impulse control in that, but there's something more going on as well, isn't there? The, totally. I, I agree with you. I was going to come to that. Right. Uh, and I think the second aspect of the human desires is that they have no limits. And that, that's where goodness and evil comes from. Uh, like other animals, unlike human beings, you know, they, they sort of feed their young, but they don't go and feed the whole forest or lions just killed a zebra, but they don't go serial killing of all the zebras in the Serengeti. But human beings can do these things. So that's where the moral good and evil, right and wrong emerges. So I just wanted to sort of counter that idea mm. that ego is an impediment to a moral life. But coming to what you said, Walid, uh, totally agree with, with that. Um, th so that has the moral dimension of ultimately our behaviors towards others. Um, but also more being consistent with oneself, like not doing one good thing and then doing another bad thing at the same time. Like fasting is considered to be good. Uh, it's an act of worship, you know, in Islam. And then if a person is lying and backbiting, uh, as a great Muslim scholar Ghazali put it, you know, doing things wrong with the senses, then it's not consistent with what we're doing. So we, we're being... There's duplicity in our actions then. So I think the sincerity 
and removing duplicity is very important in our moral character. So, so in that sense, I uh, totally agree with that. So, Scott, I, I want you to extend this then. What are the great lessons of our age or for our age that can be applied from that? I mean, a very, very great deal. Uh, one, one of the things that immediately strikes me, I think, is that the body must undergo a particular process of self-limitation and, to quote Hannah Arendt, to subject oneself to a condition of thinking, whereby what one does, one does deliberately. But I guess where I'd want to put it back on to the two of you, what is it about the comforts, about the satisfactions of food, of drink, and of sex that indulge or that induce a kind of unthinkingness about the nature and the consequences of our actions. I guess the, the underlying premise of this entire series of neglected practices is that there are certain practices that are essential to the cultivation of the moral life, but these are practices that for some reason or another are in fact neglected. We either devalue them or we lack the discipline to engage in them, or we're simply forgetful of them. I guess my, my question is, what is it about the nature of the discipline during this time and the way that Ramadan turns the body into an object of heightened awareness of our true need? What does this say about the way that we ordinarily live, that we end up being induced into conditions of unthinkingness, of conformity, and ultimately of comfort and of the satisfactions of the self. Well, I can have a go at that if you like, Mehmet, yeah, although sure. I'm sure it's not going to be as, of as much use as what you'll have to say. But uh, as you were talking about that, Scott, the, the concept that kept coming to my mind was was entitlement. Mm, so that I think that what happens is as, as you are constantly feeding these or indulging these desires, and I don't mean to say that they're necessarily nefarious desires. I mean, without them, we wouldn't survive as a species. Mm. Right? Mm. But if you regard them as being more or less on tap, then I think over time that creates a kind of sense of entitlement to them, right? Maybe the easiest way I can think of that in what makes a lot of sense, I think, in a place like Melbourne is people's sense of entitlement to coffee. So if you disrupt someone's coffee drinking routine, it's a dangerous thing to do, I would say, <laughs> in Melbourne, <laughs> right? Because, okay, there's the certain chemical element, this area of I need caffeine at this particular whatever, but there's more to it than that. What becomes attached to it is a sense that, no, this is what I do and this is what I am entitled to. And if you get in the way of it, then you are a problem. I will fight it in some way or other. Now, I'm obviously overstating this, but there's... There's a certain element to that, right? And I reckon there's something about that sort of, I don't want to say culture of entitlement because I feel like that has a particularly radioactive political meaning yeah, at the moment. Yeah. That's not what I mean. But there's yeah. something about the, um, I, I guess, the habituation of entitlement that I think can have all kinds of profound knock-on consequences in a moral register, right? And that is, if you're someone who is capable of seeing these things as gifts or blessings rather than as entitlements, then I think that changes your, your orientation, doesn't it, to all kinds of things in the world. There's a kind of humility that it infuses that, that 
I, I think is profoundly morally transformative or formative, depending on what your starting position is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually recommend uh, people to stop drinking coffee two weeks before Ramadan. Uh, well, it, uh, luckily, I'm in Sydney and not in Melbourne. Not about, well, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't do that this year. and I, I did have a couple of quite headachy days, but I'm through it now. You'll be pleased to know, so that's all right. Yes, um, uh, I'd just like to say that in human nature, we could sort of think of human being as having a hardware and a software. You know, hardware is this, um, the body, the hormones and so on. Uh, and eating, drinking, sexual activity is very much part of that uh, system. And then we've got these higher aspects of thinking, being aware, consciousness, which you could say spiritual faculties or I would rather I sort of define human spirit as the software of the body anyway. So they, they sometimes work against one another uh, when we're heavily involved in eating, drinking, sexual activity, or not heavily, but just on a regular basis as we do. The the spirit or the, the higher aspects of human being, there's no room for them to come in and exert the influence or presence. As Scott mentioned, I really like that uh, uh, example. Uh, even in, in physiolo- human physiology, we have a sympathetic and parasympathetic hormones, and it depends on what you eat and drink. And uh, so it is shown that uh, in research, uh, hunger actually uh, generates hormones that are prone to mental awareness clarity. Uh, and people who have fasts longer than a day five days or more, they they report on saying they have this amazing mental clarity. So there is that connection with uh, those basic things that we do every day and higher order human experiences, as you might say. And when we fast, we definitely feel it. This is this actually brings us surprisingly enough back to I think the first question that I put to you, Mehmet, about Iris Murdoch's description of, if you like, the distended or the morally unformed self as being a fat, relentless ego, something that sits at the center of a moral universe and simply expects things to come to it and expects all relationships in relation to it to be ones of uh, to be relationships of use convenience, consumption, enjoyment, or whatever. I think what both of you have just described, though, is precisely what Iris Murdoch understood or described as being the opposite or the inverse of the fat, relentless ego being at the center of a universe of, cons- of consumptiveness and expectation. Uh, she said that, uh, that the opposite of that is, in fact, uh, I mean, this is her word, is, in fact, love. Because what love does in the way that love regards the world around is that love sees all things as existing in themselves and as objects of beauty in and of themselves, but then receives all things as acts of grace and gift and benevolence and therefore gratitude rather than receiving things as entitlements. That's getting us back into, I think, real minefield territory. One needn't have to have a robust conception of the human person as a creature of divine act in order to have a live in a relationship to the world that is defined 
radically, I think, as a loving relationship that sees other things as having an existence, a beauty, an integrity, and then sees oneself as receiving these various things only in the form of gratitude and benevolence. Yeah, I kind of agree with that, but perhaps add that uh, relationship with the world in terms of love has as a matter of degree rather than absolutes. You know, of course, uh, yes, that's right. You know, uh, so some people love the world for the fact that you you eat, drink, and have sexual activity. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there uh, who love existing and and the world for those reasons. But then there are higher order of reasons for loving. You know, uh, one Muslim scholar has said, you know, we love things for uh, pleasure, we love it for benefit that they display, uh, or we love things because of the uh, natural affinity that we might have with them, like our children and wife and parents. But there's also one form of love which doesn't require cause, and that is beauty and perfection. Uh, so love for beauty and perfection comes just naturally to us. Perhaps it's something ingrained in us by the transcendent so that we do search for what is beautiful and what we perceive to be perfect. And in a way, fasting in Islam is a journey towards achieving human beauty and perfection. And once we are on that journey, our perspective of the world changes. Like we see beautiful scenery, we see beauty in people's behaviors and in themselves. And then, then the love actually transcends or tr- transforms into uh, higher levels of love. So, so I think that love is a, is a de- matter of degree and, and you have to go on a journey to, to discover it. Which is why mm. it's, it's a month, right? It's not mm. a day, yeah. Interesting. it's That's not right. a few hours, it's a month. It's day after day for a month every year. And, and that that's a habituating process, I suppose, right? That's what it's probably meant to do. Um, if you just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. We'll lead out these my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined today by Mehmet Ozop, who's a director of the Centre for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. We're talking about fasting, which is very literal approach to our Ramadan series, I have to say. Um, <laughs> it's not the direction I would have gone. Scott insisted. Here we are. It's not a conversation I expected to have. Although I will say, Scott, when, when you were talking there about this idea of, was it Iris Murdoch, I think you were quoting there, and yeah. the idea of love that allows you to transform things into being the result of grace or gifts or whatever. The thing I was thinking about, which I think is relevant to fasting, is it goes as deep as your relationship to the body itself, right? There are different ways of conceiving of the body. One is that it's property. It's your property as as an individual. And so you do with it what you will because it's your property, right? And that means if you want to, I don't know, eat junk food all the time or whatever, your call, your body. Um, And that is, I would describe as the contemporary Western conception of it. But the other way of looking at it, which I think has a bit of a Murdochian twist, is definitely an Islamic way of looking at it, but is it has that Murdochian twist, if I may extend it to that extent, is that it itself is a trust. Like it's actually mm. not yours, it's a gift. Mm. And then what comes with that is a, a set of obligations to honour that gift. And so let's go back to the wellness industry where we kind of started. This is part of the telos point, right? If 
if your intention in wellness is to honour the gift that you've been given in the best possible way, that is, I've been entrusted with this thing, it is my duty to look after it, here is how I'm going to look after it, that's a different sort of result to one that is, and, and a different sort of process, a journey, if you like, than one that is aimed at, here is my body, how can I make it look as beautiful as possible for whatever accoutrements that might get me in my life? Well, in fact, Walid, I think we can actually put it in a much more defined way, in a way that probably better reflects the current social conception of the body in the West, which is my body is the result of my act of creation. Hence, the predominance of body art, of mm. hair removal and hair sculpting, of physical modification. Uh, so I, I think there are all sorts of ways in which the body as the work of my self-creation rather than as gift. I, I think that is probably a fairly radical contrast that cuts across both religious and moral traditions. Hmm. So what are the implications of it then, Mehmet? I mean, I, I know you didn't come here to talk about the body, but look, here we are. Mm. What do you think the implications are of that kind of foundational difference? It really comes down to the same end, but for different meaning and motivation and, and intention as well. Uh, and I feel that the Islamic way is more meaningful and uh, and also more fulfilling. Uh, it gives a, It gives someone a purpose. And also, it doesn't make you upset that how you appear currently, because there's a limitation as to what we can do with our bodies. Uh, but this is a this is something that's been trusted to me, and then my duty is to return this trust in the best possible way when the time comes, um, and and enjoy being in that trust while I'm living. Uh, whereas in the wellness industry or motiv- motivational industry. There's an ideal place and there's all these success stories uh, that are put out there, people looking with six-pack, you know, abs and women looking fantastic. Uh, And when a person cannot achieve those, there is this sunken feeling that they have, that they have actually failed. So by Mm. counterintuitively, in a way, by promoting wellness and body, looking after the body and showing these ideal body types, We're actually making most people worse, feeling worse about themselves. Mm, Even if they're physically improving, yeah. Yeah, even if they do, but uh, most people will never get a six-pack ab or have that wonderful round features of the body, you know. Um, Or in time with old age, it's going to disappear. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so I, I really think this element of trust means that ultimately I don't own this body or you don't have to have that much ownership of it. And, and that just relaxes a person and then you can accept yourself with your imperfections while also having the feeling and re- responsibility to look after it. Okay, so then let's extend this idea of the trust, of seeing things as a, as a gift, which is kind of where we began this thought process. Let's extend it to other things. What if we extended it to wealth generally? So what happens there, Scott, rather than wealth being the result of what I have earned, wealth then being something that, yes, I have worked for, but ultimately has been entrusted to me and then carries certain obligations. So that's obligations towards people who don't have it. Mm. Um, It might be obligations to do things with it. That And so once you view it that way, it's quite a different approach again, isn't it? Because wealth might become a curse in that context because... (laughs) 
now it's asking something of you. And you could easily imagine a circumstance where you say, I wish I was freed of this. Like I, yes, I wish exactly that wasn't right. my lot. Mm. I would much rather not be tested with wealth, if you like, than, than tested without it. Because tested without it doesn't necessarily ask much of me. Whereas tested with it, it's asking me to overcome all kinds of um, instincts, desires, inclinations, and perhaps use an imagination, a moral imagination that's not being asked of other people. Like once you once you walk down this road, things just I, mean, I haven't really articulated this before, I suppose, but things begin to look very, very different, don't they? I think that the, that's right. And just for our listeners, I, uh, just to take one very small step back, uh, a lot of what we're talking about, about the body, for instance, about the wellness industry, this doesn't necessarily even simply emerge from a religious critique. One of the best books that I've read on this is by a former cosmetics executive uh, in France named Hervé Juvin, J-U-V-I-N. He wrote this wonderful book in the late 1990s, early 2000 called L'Evenement du Corps. It's been translated as the coming of the body about the way that the soul has relocated itself into the skin and the skin is now the true center of human identity. Uh, And he sort of analyzes this both through the currents of politics but also through the deprivations, uh, depredations, I should say, of the wellness industry and the cosmetics industry. It's a really, really interesting book. Well, the, the point that you're making, I, th- I think, about basically redistributive justice uh, is really not, not only really... redistributive justice, though. I, I want well, to be clear. It's not well, a no, no, no. Stuff. But if one considers redistributive justice as being predicated, certainly in the Rawlsian conception, being predicated on the idea that the wealth that one has received has come to you as a matter of contingency, not as a matter of right, nor necessarily as a matter of merit. Mm. In other words, this is. This is a kind of secular conception of this has been given to me as gift and as trust, not as right. Then it means that the – and I think you're right. There are all sorts of points of intersection both with Judaism and Islam where what I have been given, I have been given to turn into the good for others. What I've been given has been given as a gift whereby I then need to make a full accounting of what it is that I have been given. This was so interesting to me about Henry David Thoreau's initial economic experiment when he secluded himself to the woods in Walden. The first thing that he did was to tally up his expenses for living. What does it cost for me to live in the world? And then he went on to, am I living unnecessarily expensively? Can I justify my cost in the world? And I think when one begins with that, that what I have received, I have been given. What I've been given, I've been given on trust. What I have in excess, and not just what I have in excess, but what I have as a kind of, as a kind of necessary, uh, these are things that are given to me for the sake of, the benefit of, the enjoyment of, uh, um, and the ennobling of others. Seeing these things as trust as grace, uh, and therefore as having a telos that extends beyond me and beyond my own particular desires, that I think becomes a radical, radical political and social concept. Mm. Um, I think the, uh, if I may contribute to that discussion, um, I sort of look at wealth both as a, as a bit of a trust and also product of human ingenuity. Um, but if you're talking about like what motivates someone to help others in the alleviation of human suffering through uh, property or food, let's say, uh, or charity, there has to be a a transformation in thought and emotion. There needs to be some empathy towards the 
poor and needy. And I think fasting greatly facilitates that uh, because when you're hungry, you really understand what others go through. And that's why in Ramadan, Muslims usually are more charitable and uh, almsgiving is done in Ramadan as well. Uh, in terms of wealth, um, you know, wealth is, we could say that it's a product, what's generated as wealth is a product of one's work, you know, creativity, entrepreneurship, capital, let's say all of that is important, but they themselves are not enough to generate that wealth. You also need other people to work. You need, we need the resources from the planet uh, and, uh, and the agriculture, of course, like ultimately everything goes to agriculture and resources and you know, dealing with those through technology. So in a way, we could say that wealth is produced from the earth by the work of human beings. So in a sense, um, the whole humanity has a stake in what is produced as wealth. And I think the idea of almsgiving and zakat in Islam is based on this, that, that the poor people have some ownership or, or a share in that wealth that is generated by the collective action in, on earth. Uh, it's not actually a charity. Uh, in, in Islam, it's seen as you have something of what poor people have and you have to return that back mm. to them. Yeah, that's why it's called zakat, because yeah. it purifies your wealth. That's right. Without it, the wealth yeah. is tainted because it's illegitimate. You know, you're hoarding it. It also now leads us to the question of the planet as a trust. We don't have time yes. for that one. That's a different show. Um, mm. Well, it's the same show, but we don't have time for it either way. Mehmet, <laughs> as you may have picked up, we're out of time. But thank you very much for speaking to us tonight or today. Almost well, thank up. you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it greatly too. And apologies for tonight. That is fasting brain. No, definitely. <laughs> there was no reason for me to say that. I should know it's not tonight because I'm quite hungry. Uh, Mehmet Ozop is the director of the Centre for Islamic Studies and Civilization at Charles Sturt University in Canberra, I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield. Scott, we're done. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.